Now we're going to talk about a wonderful piece of scripture this morning. We'll be in John uh, chapter 21 here in just a couple minutes. So we come uh, today and we just get a chance to honor uh, mothers. And you know, so many like Mother's Day, maybe third behind Christmas and Easter. And it might, uh, it might be second right behind Easter for uh, attended services in churches. Uh, I know that it's one of the top two days for eating out uh, after church. So one word of warning, do not go out and be cheap today, especially on Mother's Day, right? Don't go in carrying your Bible and sit the waiter. Uh, that's not how we do things, right? Don't leave the track instead of money. Uh, it's very hard to spend a track. Uh, if you want to tell them the gospel, tell them and then leave a hearty tip uh, as you do that. Other than that, uh, such a joy and a blessing to be with uh, those this morning, other churches that gather around our area. I just want to take a minute and pray for them, pray with them, pray with you all as we enjoy each other's company today. For the mothers that are here that are visiting, thank you so much for coming. Um, man, it's just an honor to see and to be a part of uh, what God is doing. Um, I, I remember stating it, and I think you have to state it in regards to the family. But I remember stating it before, like, you know the you know the power of something based upon its absence, not only its presence. And I remember quoting that in, in relation to fathers, right, like when the father is not present. It's the same, and it's so very powerful to remember. It's the same with mothers. You know the, the value and the power of something when it is absent. And so if you are a mother here today, if you've taken on that role in some other form uh, today, not just the typical uh, form of being a mother, but we've got kids that need foster care, we've got adoptions that are taking place, we've got all these other things, and I also want to give you this example as well. Uh, some of you all live in the culture of sports, you live in the culture uh, of running and being a part of these sports teams and things like that. Uh, some of you teach at school, listen, I would just remind you both forcefully and gently, uh, you have an opportunity there to be something special uh, to kids that aren't actually yours. And there comes a point in time when everybody gets to pick who they want to associate with. They almost get to pick who they want to be their parents. Some of you have set yourself up to be a part of that conversation later on in life uh, from other people, even for children that have wonderful parents. Some of you all have intervened and been helpful and loved and cared for. And in that, with, with that part of motherhood, you also honor and glorify your God by giving people a safe place to come. Some of you have done it so well that you get access to things, especially from children, that their own parents do not. For those people, I am definitely blessed to know and to think about all the people in our church that have loved my children well, that one day when they're 15, 16, 17, and they're not interested in talking to me anymore because I've entered my dumb face and they've entered their genius face, uh, I am very thankful for the idea that there are so many here that have loved them so well that you're going to enter into a relationship with them uh, and be a blessing to them in those moments. And for all those things, a lot of times you hear people now, and, and uh, I'm so hesitant not to celebrate things because of things other people are going through. So when you talk about Mother's Day and Father's Day, there's always the one voice or the ten voices that say, well, you have to be careful because it's not a great time for everybody. I understand that, but let me tell you this. In the kingdom of God, by the power of God, every woman here has the opportunity to be a mother to someone. You just do. There are children that need what you have to offer. There are older people that need what you have to offer, but they never had it from anyone else. Part of what the church is supposed to do is to facilitate those things. And again, I go back to this simple idea. There comes a point in time at 16, 18, 24, 30, you get to pick who your mother is and who your father is. And a lot of times it's not the person that you were born to, especially in our culture. Those relationships have been so broken and so beat up. You have an opportunity, Christian woman, to be a part of someone's life. So I want to celebrate this moment. I want to encourage you, but I also want to challenge you. The kingdom of God is built around the idea that you and I should create connections that are more powerful than the blood ones we were born into. And I will believe that until the day I die. Your blood-bought family in Jesus is meant to be of highest priority. And in that, God can fix things you and I are missing. Pray with me this morning. Lord, we love you. 
We thank you for mothers. We thank you for the opportunity to gather with them today and just to enjoy their company and to celebrate them. I pray for those right now, God, that are here that are grieving something uh, in their heart. I pray for them specifically right now that you would draw them close into this, God, that you would remind them of your love and your care and your tenderness, that you would remind them, God, of their usefulness and that they are not broken, that they are not uh, uh, something that is cursed, God, but that uh, right now, for whatever reason, your sovereign hand is at work in their life, that you are drawing them closer to you and in a more intimate relationship with them, that you are setting them up to be blessed into the future, and that God, if they're grieving right now, that they would be reminded not to be tempted, uh, like our mother and father in the garden, that they would not be tempted, Lord, to disregard your word or to impugn your character, but they would lean into it, God, as a heavenly Father that loves them dearly, and that you would start to open their eyes this morning uh, to avenues that they have been or can be a blessing uh, to others, Lord, as we celebrate mothers here this morning. And God, I pray for those right now, Lord, those mothers in our church and all around, God, those that are gathering together at church this morning, uh, Lord, I just pray for your power just to fall on those buildings today as they look in gratitude around and see people that have loved others dearly, that have been sacrificial, that have given so much. And God, I just pray that you would draw our heart back into the goodness of a good mother, but God, also the idea that in your imprint on them, you have shown us a piece of humanity. God, may we never take for granted the power of a good mother in the middle of the night when we're sick, when we're hurting, when we're in need. God, may we remember that your goodness is seen all through that. So we give you honor and glory this morning for all those mothers, God, those that have, have borne us, God, out of pain and suffering and love and sacrifice, and those that have, have, have meshed themselves into our lives, that they love us like mothers and grandmothers. We thank you for everyone that has been a godly example. Help us to be a church that sees that need and fills it properly. Lord, because there are a lot of people that need good parents. And Lord, you have a lot of people that can be good things. Put them together in our body and in the bodies around our area and around the world. Even this morning, Jesus, we praise you and thank you. Amen. Amen. We love you and we're thankful for you. John chapter 21 this morning is where we will be. We're going to go through one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And just in a moment of complete honesty, uh, Peter has very many times, more, more along the lines of Simon, has many, many times reminded me of myself. And so as I've read this story for the last 10 to 15 years in John 21, I always find myself a little deeper in the passage than maybe I should be. I always find myself a little more uh, attached to the emotional connection here than maybe I should be, or maybe you will this morning. But I'm going to tell you what, this is a fascinating passage of Scripture to go through. Because if you've ever messed up, if you've ever wrote a check you eventually couldn't cash, if you've ever been braggadocious about something, if you have ever uh, really failed like an intense failure, like you set yourself up the best you knew how uh, for success, and then all of a sudden you went a 180 and just dropped that ball, if you have ever felt like that in your life, today you're going to see how Jesus interacts with somebody like that. And it is glorious. The grace of God is just amazing. And as we get ready to walk into that, I will just remind you of one of the passages of Scripture. says, you and I are like we're not enemies of God anymore. He doesn't even call us slaves. Right? Jesus would say he calls us friends. That is a picture of the grace you and I are going to see this morning with the goodness of Jesus Christ and how he interacts with Peter, a loudmouth failure. So today we talk about redemption, forgiveness, and restoration. Where were we? Well, the last couple of weeks, the last three weeks, we've been preaching through proofs and principles of Scripture, proofs and principles that point to a resurrected Jesus and change how you and I interact with this world. These proofs and these principles should change how you and I interact with the world. They are important enough for us to be anchored to. They are strong enough for us to be anchored to. There is no theory out there for 2,000 years. There has been no theory that can, that can answer all the objections 
to a bodily resurrected Jesus. And we're walking through that slowly. And I told you, if you were here during these uh, sermons or you were listening, by the time we finish two weeks from now, you would have an understanding as to why you actually believe that Jesus was resurrected. So what have we talked about so far? We've talked about the empty tomb. We've talked about eyewitnesses. We've talked about all the prophecy that Jesus fulfills. There's a guy by the name of Peter Sumner, I believe in the 1970s, he came up with a mathematical equation. I'm going to butcher it because I haven't looked it up in a while. He came up with a mathematical equation. And he said if Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ to fulfill eight prophecies in the Old Testament, just eight, the chances of that were 1 times 10 to like 257th power. Okay? And now we're lost. Right? This is college level stuff. Like we're lost. So that number, I wrote it on the board for the teams one year. It took me like a minute and a half to write all the zeros. That's how big it is. But then he explained it this way. If you were to take a silver dollar, all right, now, now walk with me here. If you were to take a silver dollar and you were to take that one silver dollar and mark it and drop it in the state of Texas, turn someone loose and say, not even find it, blindfold them, have them walk around as long as they wanted, it is the same odds that they would bend over and pick up that one silver dollar blindfolded. Pretty impressive, isn't it? Here's the last piece. That one times ten to like the 257th power, that stack of silver dollars is two feet deep. It's not an accident that Jesus Christ fulfills these prophecies. You take one silver dollar, the state of Texas, fill it two foot deep all over the state of Texas, you turn one person loose blindfolded and say, walk around and find that silver dollar. That's the odds of Jesus just being born and fulfilling eight prophecies of Scripture. Not the 48, not the 62. Some people will tell you that he fulfilled. Just eight. A bare minimum. Somebody tinkered with the history. Somebody planned it. Somebody brought it about. You and I do not live by blind faith. Jesus Christ fulfills Old Testament prophecies. If you want to see three of the biggest, go to Genesis 3, go to Isaiah 53, and go to Psalm 22. We've read them on repeat in the last couple of weeks. If you want to catch up, that's where we have been. And there is a massive change to the disciples. What's the other proof? There's a massive change to the disciples. We have not gone to the extent of that change yet. We will get there later. But just know this. A resurrected Jesus changed their behavior. Now once we get to Pentecost and we get into the book of Acts for a couple weeks, you're going to see just how drastically a resurrected Christ and the Holy Spirit has changed them. Because it is drastic. Then we've talked about some principles the last couple weeks to go with these. Principle number one, tender-hearted Christians know God. If you want to know the Lord, find the right thing to grieve over. We talked about it in Sunday school, and I'm always amazed that uh, when I teach Sunday school how many connections there are between something that I did not know we were going to be going through in Sunday school and then something that on Sunday morning was completely attached. In Daniel this morning, Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is grieving and fasting for three weeks. For 21 days, he is so grieved of what he has seen in a vision. And he's begging God for help. And he grieves and he fasts and addresses himself uh, and, and basically in sackcloth and ash. He refuses uh, to celebrate anything in the king's court like this guy is grieving. And what happens on day 21, day 22? He gets a visit from an angel of the Lord. God is near to the broken hearted. If he feels distant to you, and if it's been a while since you've experienced some intimacy and some closeness to him, find something proper to grieve over. What else do we talk about? You'll find Jesus in the Old Testament. And not only will you find Jesus in the Old Testament, but you'll find him there first. This is so very important to the story of Christianity, and those that disconnect the two have done themselves an amazing disservice, a painful disservice. You will find Christ in the Old Testament starting in Genesis chapter 3 with the first prophecy of his time. And finally, we talk about the idea that to experience a resurrected Jesus is to be changed. If you claim to be a Christian and your life has not been changed, you have not run into a resurrected Jesus. 
you haven't experienced what it's like to meet a risen Messiah that has conquered sin, the enemy, death, and the grave. He has conquered all of that. When you and I run into Him, it changes things. Changes the way we live. Changes how we see life. It changes our hopes. It changes our discipline. It, it, it changes uh, what we are aligned with and how tightly we are aligned with it. The things of this world get very loose and the things of the world to come get very tight. And because of that, we are actually more useful in this world than we would have been. You go through that constantly. You want to love your spouse best, love the Lord most. You want to love your children well, love your spouse and love the Lord. Love the Lord first, love your spouse, love your kids. If you want to do these things right, you want to honor your community, if you want to be good at work, if you want to love your children, love God best, and He will align everything else to make you exactly who you need to be in the minute you need to be there. So today we talk about these ideas in John 21. We get to another resurrection appearance of Jesus. John 21, redemption, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Jesus gives us a really good piece of, of how that looks even in our life today in this passage. Because we're going to watch him and Peter be reconciled. Look at verses 1 to 3 with me. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now John will go on to say this is the third time he has appeared to the disciples, but we're getting very close to the ascension. So what do we have? We have the third time Jesus appears to the disciples in about 40 days. So there's been some lapses between when he shows up and when he is somewhere else. And then he shows up again, and then he is somewhere else. What do we see in this passage in John 21? We see that in the midst of all the excitement, the joy, and the chaos, mouths still need to be fed. Stuff needs to get done. And I think if we look at the story of Peter being the mouthpiece or the eldest in the group, what he says is the, or the path that he goes on is going to carry a lot of weight. Scholars will tell us Peter is the oldest of the disciples. Part of that uh, you see in the story where he and Jesus have to pay taxes, and it's like everybody else, or at least all the disciples in the group at that moment, everybody else gets to skate by because Jesus says, go fish. When you pull up the fish, you'll find two coins. Pay them for me and you. So what we see here is that Peter is the eldest in the group. And so because of that, he's going to carry some weight. He's all, he also has the biggest mouth. We see that all through Scripture, all through uh, the Gospels. It's Peter speaking up, Peter saying that. Sometimes he hits it out of the park. <laughs> Sometimes Jesus looks at it and says, get behind me, Satan. Right? Now you see why I'm, I'm, me and Peter buzz. We've got some real similarities. In the midst of all that, mouths still need to be fed. They're going to return to what they know. For either a moment or into the future. We don't get that picture of this. But what we do get is the idea that something needs to be done. And instead of waiting around, it's time to get started again. And so in these moments of, of uh, span of time, this third interaction with Christ now, in about 40 days, they're getting back to work. And Peter's leading that charge. They're going to return to what they know. They're either going to do it for today or they're going to do it for the future. But something right now needs to happen. They're waiting and waiting and waiting. Maybe there's a little bit of impatience. Maybe it's just cruise. Maybe it's just good living. Maybe they're hungry and it's time to do something. But in this passage, what do we see? It's time to get back to work. Look at verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they are not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Christ calls in the middle of the work, and then what does he do? He blesses it. He blesses it. 
Maybe the same thing about school that I think about work. You spend way too many hours there for God not to touch it. There is no sacred and there is no secular divide in the kingdom of God. If you are on mission for Him and you are a disciple of Him, the Lord will bless you in that secular world too. Proverbs says that do you see someone good in their craft, they'll stand before kings. Do you see someone excellent in what they do? They will make their way to the upper echelon of those things. Jesus blesses them in their work. He will bless you in your prayer time. He will bless you in your Bible study time. He will bless you when you are going to work. He will bless you on a mission trip. He will bless you in all of those places. Do not ever forget. If you're spending 40 hours a week in a spot, school, work, flipping burgers, it does not matter. Do it for the honor and the glory of God, and He will bless you there too. He will show Himself mighty on your behalf. He will use you to change heaven. Echoes of what you do at your job will ripple on all throughout eternity because you showed up and you loved people well. To you young ones here today, it's the same thing for school. You spend way too many hours in school for it to be wasted on just learning or planning for your future. And if you want to call it planning for your future, I'm fine with that. But you better get into the next one too. You better be planning for what's to come, what job you want, what kind of life you're going to steer, and all these other things. But you better be looking at the next one too when you stand before God and He says, what did you do with 30,000 hours of school time? 28 and a professional student, right? And the Lord's like, what did you do with 50,000 hours of school? Was it just for you or were you a light and salt in a dark world? Do not forget, friends, there is no sacred and secular divide. You being here this morning is not church service. Any more than it is when you wake up tomorrow and you go to work and you punch in for that person who's just nasty to be around. You work that job where nobody tells you thank you. You go in tomorrow and somebody's unfair to you. Somebody's not nice to you. They ask you to do something you shouldn't have to do. All these other things you just run down the list. And so you and I want to get nasty. We want to get mean. We want to get back. We want to get out. We need to understand that the Lord sees. And what you do there blesses Him and changes His kingdom. Just like what we do here. You are on mission. So what does Jesus do in that passage? He blesses the work they're going. Look at verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Three elements of the Christian life that you and I will find here this morning. We're going to see recognition. Who is it? It's Jesus. Who's the first one to see that? I love this idea too. It's John. John refers to himself as the disciple in whom Jesus loved all throughout this book. I don't know if it's humility of not wanting to write his own name, or I heard it once explained to me this way by an accountant, and it was hysterical. We were having just a conversation together. Like all the tax stuff had been turned in, and now it was just time to talk, and this guy was a Christian. And he was talking about his first wife. And he said she was one of the sweetest people I'd ever been around. And he said she was the first one to explain to me what it was like for John to write what he wrote. Because she said, I know God loves everybody equally or all of his children equally. But sometimes it just feels like he loves me a little extra. And that's an amazing thought. I don't know if John had grabbed that principle and just run with it as a young man, knowing that now he was writing his account, and the only way he could praise himself was not John or John the disciple or anything like that. The only way he could praise himself was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Why? Because when he was interacting with the Lord, the Lord made him feel that special. And I take you again this morning to Sunday school in Daniel chapter 10. What happens? The angel shows up to Daniel. He's falling on the ground like he's dead because he is just so floored by what he's seen. And he says the angel picks him up, put him on his knees, and he's still there trembling. And he looks at him and says, Oh man, greatly loved of God. What the enemy robs from you and I when he hides his truth from us. 
what the enemy robs from you and I when he hides this truth from us. You are the apple of God's eye. And Christ was pinned to that cross with those spikes. You were one of the reasons he saved. Now, if that don't give you chills, nothing will. But who recognizes him first is the one that probably worshipped him the most or honored him the most. It is John that goes with Christ to the cross. He is one of the last disciples close enough to see what's going on. And now he's one of the first disciples that sees Jesus from a distance. And the Holy Spirit says, his spirit says, it's Christ. So we see recognition. What else do we see? We see Peter in the position of worship. Why else would he dress himself and jump out of the boat? There is my Savior. I have to get to Him. What an awesome picture of worship. And finally, there's those that continue to work. In the Christian life, you and I will be a part of, at times, all three of these. You will see Christ work. You will worship Him. And then sometimes you'll just be in the mundane of the work. And Jesus blesses all three. He doesn't look at any of them and say you did the wrong thing. He doesn't chastise them for not recognizing who he is. He doesn't chastise all of them for not jumping out of the boat and trying to get to them. And he doesn't chastise them for sticking around to finish the work. All three of these pieces in the life of what goes on is blessed by Jesus. You and I will experience them at certain times. Sometimes you will see him at work first. And you'll be the first one there. Sometimes you'll be intimate and worship like Peter was. And you'll just be out of the boat, leaving everything else behind. And sometimes you'll be the one that has to do the work. Teaching Sunday school. Putting up the chairs. Throwing one of 50 other things around here that has to be done. Turning the lights on. Putting the air conditioner on. You'll be the one at work that just kind of all the nasty stuff lands on your plate. And you just need to get it done. Listen, God honors all of them. He blesses all of them. And when you get into those positions, you and I need to understand that we are being a part of the work of God. John recognizes Peter worships in the other work, and Jesus blesses all three. Look at verse 9 with me. When they got out on land, they saw charcoal fire, a charcoal fire in place with fish on it and bread. The principle of work and obedience are not about fulfilling Jesus' needs. The principles of work and obedience are not about fulfilling what Jesus needs. God is self-sufficient. He does not need our help. He chooses to use you and I. And what happens in that? The glory of God is magnified because He uses broken people like us and you and I are satisfied with being useful. Jesus says, have you caught any fish? And they say no. And he says, do this. And all of a sudden, there is a great multitude of fish. And yet when they show up on the shore, he's already good to go. The blessing is for them. The principles of work and obedience are not to fulfill Jesus' needs. His work and his commands bless you and they bless others through you. Do not ever forget that. Do not carry that burden Right? This group is back on mission. Everything they do is back on mission. Do not ever forget the idea that you are there as a piece of God's plan. That He is totally self-sufficient. His glory is to be paramount. And you and I are to be used in that. In that usefulness, we are not supplying God's needs. He is supplying ours and we are supplying the needs of other people and loving them well. What happens next? Look at verse 10 with me. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Young ones, listen very carefully. God's blessings won't tear your nets. When God calls you to do something, there is no curse that comes with the blessing. Let me tell you the trade that the enemy makes and the culture makes. The enemy and the culture will entice you to do things that on the outside look great, but they always tear your neck. Sometimes you'll lose the whole haul. 
Because what looked good, you went out and you grabbed a hold of, you were enticed and you took it. And when you did, it tore some net in your life. It tore some guardrail in your life. And out of that flowed everything you were promised. And the enemy laughs. You see, God calls them to do something. When they do it, they are blessed beyond measure. But in that blessing, they get to keep it all. It's all a blessing. They were floored with the idea that how did the net not break? This is more fish than we've ever brought in by a massive amount, and yet our nets are still complete. The blessings of God carry no curses. Listen carefully to the young ones. The blessings of God carry no curses. When you partake in what God has given, in the way God gives it, or the way He tells you to partake in it, your nets aren't torn. All the blessing, none of the curse. Your character stays intact. Your family stays intact. Those around you are blessed. It can just be the struggle for work. It can be the struggle to go from 40 hours to 60. And just in that idea, you think, man, but we're going to be able to do this. And we're going to be able to do that. And in that, you have pursued something God did not tell you to pursue. So though the money comes in, now the net is broken and something is wrong. Does that make sense? God's blessings carry no curses. You get to enjoy the best of what God has to offer without any of the frustration that the world, the devil, or your own flesh should lay on you after partaking, especially in things that look good. I need you to understand, most of you are not going to trip up today and fall into something that is blatantly evil. You're going to make a compromise that leads you down a road, chasing things that are good, that eventually land you in the middle of a mess that you never dreamed. Because when you partook, that net was torn. The guardrail was broken open. God's blessings don't tear your nets. The cost of obedience may be hard, but His blessing leaves no curses. There are no potholes between the rails. We're not even talking about driving off the cliff. There are no potholes in the rails. Between the rails is God's blessing. No alignments that need to be had. had those three flat tires in the span of three minutes. Y'all remember our story? There's none of that. No vent rims that you can't find, and now that bump is going to cost you fourteen, sixteen hundred dollars, right? There's no potholes. It's just smooth sailing. Now it's hard. And there's a yoke to bear. You got to tell your flesh no. But when you partake in the things God has given, in a way He tells you to partake in them. Your nets will not be torn. And all the blessing is yours to enjoy. It's a fascinating promise. When you turn on, every time you turn on TV or every time you flip your phone on, somebody is promising you something. And if it is worldly and if it is secular and if it turns you away from the Lord, there is a promise there, but there is a penalty there as well. Some of them are immediate and some of them are a little slower to come. Love this idea. I've told you all before a hundred times the details matter. Why in the world does John see fit to write 153 fish? Dude, like Jesus is right there. We're hanging out and Peter or John or somebody is taking the time to count the fish. Right? Does that sound crazy to anybody else but me? I like 153 fish. Boy, that is really, really precise. If you go to Ezekiel 47 later, you're going to see a picture here of the kingdom of God. And it says in that there's a river flowing from the temple of God. And in that river, there will be a multitude. There will be great catches of fish. And all the people will come and they will fish that. And just the idea is there's this all-encompassing idea in this passage. That this passage points to all the people of the world being gathered together in God's kingdom. And much like in John where he talks about the, the wedding feast and the water being turned to wine, and not just wine, the best wine, this piece comes up, and what is it again spelling out for you and I? Christ is Messiah. To be in His presence is to see the kingdom of God fulfilled. 
And so he goes out of his way to make sure you and I understand this is extravagant because this is Messiah. You're longing for something. You're longing for someone. Here he is. Read Ezekiel 47 later. Just enjoy that passage. How about verse 12? Verses 12 to 14. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now one of the disciples dared ask him, uh, Not now none. Wow. Blind. Now none of the disciples dared ask him. We got ready to change the whole sermon. Right? But listen, one word. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them and sowed with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. How he nuances that last statement, I can't really tell you. Was it all the disciples? Was it this group of disciples? He appears to the, to the women. He appears to them, I believe, at least twice. That's not counted here. So Jesus is appearing to all kinds of other people. John, in this passage, is talking about some group right there, either those seven or, or a couple of them together. He's just saying this is the third time that these people have been here and they have seen a resurrected Christ. They have learned their lesson. Right? If you remember the first two times, very easy for one of them to say, who is he? Is this real? Not this time. Don't you love the grace of God? He could have chastised them. He could have done so much. Again, you know, even with Peter in the boat, he doesn't recognize him from a distance. Jesus could have done so many other things. Instead, he allows this growth process. They have learned their lesson. The fear and the unbelief have been laid to rest. They know him. And they know they are with him. How comforting. How joy-filled they must have been to enjoy this moment of being with Christ, to recognize it from the start, and just to be able to enjoy it. Instead of anything harsh, they walk onto the shore, there's Jesus, they sit down, and now they have matured into the position where they get to just enjoy who He is. They have learned their lesson. I love the grace of God and maturity. The first time they didn't recognize Him, He could have been harsh and walked off and said, you all obviously aren't the one. The second time, he could have been, man, you all are just really stiff-necked and hard-hearted. I don't think you got this. But yet the third time he walks in and they come up to shore and they just celebrate the resurrected Lord. This is a packed passage. The back by side. Go to verse 15 with me. Back in fellowship. Back in fellowship. We're going to unwrap these next couple verses and just enjoy what happens next. I need you to understand all the things that are going on and we're going to walk through them, but I want you to understand it in the context of who Peter is. He is the eldest in the group. He is a loud mouth. He is prideful. He is boastful. He has done things. He said things. He has betrayed Christ. And in all of this, this is where the passage lands with you and I. Look at verse 15 with me. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, verse 18, I say to you, when you were young and you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Verse 19, then he said, uh, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Verses 15 to 19, we see this picture of restoration, reconciliation, what it looks like to build that relationship back together. But you've got to see it in the context of Luke 22 and John 13. Luke 22, what is it? Jesus looks at Peter and says, The devil has desired to sift you. And he says, When you come back, when you repent, 
Feed my sheep. He looks at Peter and says, I'll pray for you when you come back. Feed my sheep. There's a different interaction in the way Judas betrays Christ and in the way Peter betrays Christ. And I want to be honest with you. I don't know if it just comes down to the way Jesus prayed for Peter. Because Judas betrays Jesus and what does he do? He is grieved to the point of death. And the Bible says he goes and hangs himself. He throws the blood money back into the temple. And he goes and hangs himself. The Bible also says that Peter betrays Jesus. And when the rooster crows, he is reminded that he is grieved to the point of tears. One leads to death. One leads to repentance. You need to understand this passage in the continuation, in the continuity of Luke 22, when Jesus looks at Peter. And we're talking about the Lord's Supper. We're talking about all this beautiful stuff going on in the last moments of Jesus' life. And then he looks at Peter and says, The enemy has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. When you repent, feed my sheep. So now we see this passage in light of that. And then in John uh, 13, he makes the same kind of statement to Peter. Peter says, Lord, all these other people may betray you, but I will not. Jesus says, you're going to fail. Jesus answers, you will lay down your life for me. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. That is at the end of John 13. So you see this passage in light of all that Peter has been told you were going to fail, and yet Peter still says, they may fail, Lord. But I'm good. I'm going to be with you till the end. So not only did he fail, Jesus told him he was going to. Gave him direct detail. And when the rooster crows, Peter realizes exactly what has just happened. He has been sifted. He has been found wanting. He is broken and he has betrayed his Lord. And he runs and he grieves and he weeps. And the most amazing thing is Jesus has waited three weeks for three interactions for 30 days or 35 days. He has waited that long to have this interaction with Peter. He could have done it on day one. He chose not to. Don't know why. He is sovereign. I am not. He could have done it the second time. He did not. He waits all this time. He lets it marinate. He lets the Holy Spirit work on Peter. He lets him change his character. And so then, finally then, when he get ready to ascend back into heaven, he pulls Peter aside and he has this conversation. And I want you to go and I want you to write Mark 16, 6. If you write that in your Bible, write it now. I want you to think about something real quick. Mark is the interaction of, of Jesus' helper or Peter's helper. So Peter is having his secretary write out his memoirs. Okay, that's the Gospel of Mark. Okay? Mark 16, 6 says this. The angel appears to them and he says, Go tell his disciples and Peter. Why would that? Peter was a disciple. Yeah, but he had betrayed Christ. And so in Peter's own recollection of what goes on, the angel comes in and he talks to him and he says, Go tell the disciples and Peter. Meaning this, Jesus says, I'm not finished with him. Can you imagine the hope of that moment? What would have been lifted up in him? Listen, Peter, the angel told us to tell you specifically, Jesus is coming to see you. And they wait and they wait and they wait. But this interaction in John is finally when it happens. And Jesus looks in and says, do you love me? Love dictates all of our responses to him. To love is to grieve our failures. If you love Christ, if you love your family, you will grieve your failures. Love is to crave intimacy. We crave it with people that we love. Whether it's a friend, a spouse, a child, you and I crave intimacy. When Jesus looks at Peter and says, do you love me? He's asking him all these questions. Do you want to be intimate with me, your Savior, your Lord? To love is to subject my desires, my will, and my failures to the heart of the beloved. Whether it's my wife, my children, my family, my church, my Lord. Loving requires that I subject who I am and what I want to them. why it hurts so bad to love so well because you and I have to say no to the flesh over and over and over and finally this Peter is back in the saddle ready for what's next when you and I get into Acts the first like 10 chapters 
Peter is a main character. The world is changed by him. But it doesn't come about without this moment. There's a process to repentance. If you don't know the Lord or you're struggling with that today, if something is wrong, I would beg you just to pay attention to this process because this is what it's going to look like in your life and it's what it's going to look like in mine. There is a process to repentance. It isn't trail mix to pick through. It's a gourmet feast. And you start with the appetizer and you don't finish until dessert is over. But you have to take it all. And this is what it looks like. Number one, Jesus and Peter. After dinner, alone and intimate, your repentance will come between you and God only. It starts there, Psalm 53. Against you and you alone I have sinned is the cry of David. Even though he failed the nation of Israel, he failed a child that was that was killed because of his sin. He failed Bathsheba. He failed Joab. He failed the army of Israel. He failed all of those soldiers that died in that battle because he had set really bad directions. He failed all of them. And yet, when he comes to repentance, he fails against God and God alone first. Peter and Jesus are going to have this conversation. One of the commentaries I read was amazing, though. It said, Peter, uh, Jesus chose after dinner so he didn't spoil Peter's meal. Is that cool? Wait until he was full. Wait until they had some fellowship. Wait until the moment was right. And then he pulls him aside. Instead of ruining the rest of his day, Jesus says, let's have a little food first. We'll feel a little better. You'll feel better. I feel good. And then we'll have this conversation. Don't worry, nobody's, nobody's trying. <laughs> After dinner, alone and intimate. You're going to get a reminder of who you were. Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, son of John. The same way he called him at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus will now call him that again. If you are familiar with the Gospels, whenever Peter is called Simon, he's done something stupid. Right? Because he had a new name. Peter, rock, strong, sturdy. And then there was Simon, the screw-up man. Should have said that, Simon. <laughs> Simon, ooh, all right. Simon, son of John, you're going to get a reminder of who you were. Who you were before you met Christ, who you were when you were in fellowship with him. Simon said when Jesus ultimately blesses him the first time, because that's how he calls him, out of that life into a new life. Come with me, I'll make you fisher of men. You're going to be alone, you're going to be intimate with God, and then you're going to get a reminder of who you were context is simply this. Do you want to be that person or stay that person? Do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus is going to ask. Do you love me? This is a total sign of humility. Jesus is making Peter enter back into the position that he was in when he failed. This is so hard to get people to understand. If you don't deal with the scarring of your heart, you're never going to get healing later on. Like you have to go back into those moments and you have to peel them back open and you have to let the Lord touch them to heal them. Jesus doesn't just look at people and say, hey, hey man, we're cool. Just going about your business. You're going to be a pastor. You're going to be an evangelist. You're going to do this. No, he says, do you love me? He takes them back to the failure. You deny them. Do you love him? He does it once. He does it twice. And he does it three times. He brings in this restoration process. And you can see it in the way he agrees. If you read through that passage and you get into the different languages, Jesus says, do you agape me? Do you love me like God loves me? And Peter responds with, I phileo you. I love you with a brotherly love. There is this submission and this humility that comes about by Jesus asking him a question he cannot answer properly. Jesus looks at Peter and says, do you love me with a godly love? And all Peter can muster, he's done lying. He's done manipulating. All he can muster is, I love you with a brotherly love. Like there's more to come. He can do more, but right now that's all he's got. And he doesn't bring anyone else into the equation with him. That fascinates me. No other names are mentioned. It's just Jesus and Peter. And Peter's not pointing at anybody else and saying, I love you more than they do. He's not doing that anymore. It's done. Jesus says, do you love me with a God love? Peter says, I love you with a brotherly love. And Jesus says, do you love me with a God love? And Peter says, I love you with a brotherly love. And finally Jesus says, Peter, do you love me with a brotherly love? And Peter says, Lord, you know everything. I love you. And he gives him a commission not to love him the rest of his life by himself. He gives him a commission to feed the lambs, tend the sheep, feed the sheep. In community together, Peter is going to live the rest of his life loving the people of God. There's no mention of anyone else. There's a grace and humility. Peter has now learned it and finally this. Declaring Paul the relationship and intimacy with God boils down to this. Just follow Christ. Do what he tells you to do. 
He is your lead. He is your shepherd. There are people he will bring in that you can follow too as long as they follow Jesus. That's what, uh, that's what Paul said. Follow me as I follow Christ. As your pastor, I can look at you and say the same thing. Follow me as I follow Christ. Other leadership in the church, follow them as they follow Christ. Uh, people in our church that you love and careful, follow them as they follow Christ. You and I can have that conversation together. But he looks at Peter, and the idea of keeping Peter close to Jesus is just simply this, follow me. And he says it to him twice. As he tells him how he's going to die, he's going to stretch out your arms. Church history says that Peter was taken and crucified like his Lord. And before the moment came, he asked to be crucified upside down. That's what church history tells us. Because I don't deserve to die like my Lord crucifying me upside down. So they crucify him upside down. After Jesus tells him that story, he says, follow me. And then again, Peter looks over at John and he says, what about this one? And God says, don't worry about him. You follow me. As they come this morning to play, that is it. Do you love him? Are you following him? You want to keep your life straight. You want to stay between the guardrails. You want to do things that bless other people. You want to love uh, this world well. You want to be a help in this community. You want to be a help in your school. You want to be a help in your family. Follow the Lord. And he will sort these other things out. And if you never went through the process of repentance with him, I am begging you right now, get alone with Jesus. Deal with who you were. Even who you are right now if you don't know him. Is there chaos in your life? Is there struggle? Is there sin? Is there curses? Are there all these other things going on? I would beg you, do business with him. Because he has something so much better for you. Peter was a mess. And he ends up getting strong and sturdy. And being the person that helps start the church and helps guide the church and helps love all these people. And you and I sit in the building today in an element of people that are here partly because of his ministry. That's the impact you and I can have. A mess to a message, right? A test to a testimony. That thing that floats around Facebook so often is so good. But you really can do. you got a message, Jesus can make it a message. He can love people and draw you close and draw them closer to him through you. And he looks at you and I and just says, follow me. They play this morning. If you need something, you come. And you pray. You can ask somebody to meet with you if you need it. But we just want to love you. I just want you to leave here blessed this morning with the goodness of God. No matter what you've done, Peter denied Christ three times to a certain girl. And within 50 days, he started the church the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the change that can be made in a life that God gets a hold of. Stand on this morning.